welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me today is music supervisor and publisher Lucy Bright. Lucy started out at Mute Records working with artists such as Nick Cave and Depeche Mode, and she then moved to Warner Classics for six years before leaving to manage composer Michael Nyman. She joined the film and TV department of Publisher Music Sales in 2008, overseeing an extraordinary roster of film composers, including Gabriel Yared, Jocelyn Pook and Philip Glass. And in 2020, Lucy launched her own music publishing company, Bright Notion Music, which currently represents and nurtures some of the world's most influential artists and composers working today. Lucy has music supervised some of the most critically acclaimed British films of recent years. Samantha Morton's directorial debut, The Unloved, Lynn Ramsey's BAFTA-winning short, The Swimmer, Justin Curzel's Assassin's Creed, and most notably and recently, the 2022 Cannes Film Festival Award-winning Aftersun. And Lucy's work in television is equally renowned, including Southcliffe, McMafia, Sheen Meadows' This Is England 1990, The Virtues, and Life After Life. Lucy, welcome back to now. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to have to cut straight to the chase and talk a bit about the Cannes Film Festival. Congratulations. Oh, I'm so proud. It was a beautiful team and it's a it's a gorgeous film. And first time director, Charlie Wells, Charlotte Wells. Mm. It's yeah, it's gorgeous. I can't wait for everyone to see it. So so that was a treat. It was my first time back at Cannes for probably three years. And beautiful score by Oliver Coates, Ollie Coates. Um, and he was there as well. We were all, it was really nice to kind of finally be together to celebrate this film. So yeah really nice and it's getting fantastic reviews as well it really is I think it's really touched people it's funny because when you work on something for a year like I have done on that and um you know you you read a script and you think you know you make your decisions whether you want to work on something partly because of that and it and it was a fantastic script you know it goes off and it's made and you sort of dip in and out of it during the production but you never quite know you know how the world's going to take it, and yeah. um, and it just seems to have really hit and all you know chimed with people. So yeah, it was a very emotional kind of standing ovation and lots of lots of tears all round, but in a kind of yeah, in a really beautiful way. Yeah, and when you've worked with a team like that as well, that have put so much passion and energy into a film, it must be a great celebratory moment. It is. And, you know, there are also, there were people who I'd been, you know, working with, like the editor, because the editor had been in New York and um, obviously the, because it was shot in Turkey. So I'd never even, sometimes I do go on set, but I didn't, I wasn't there for this. And so I'd never met the DOP and, you know, suddenly you are all there together and yeah, kind of sharing that love for for the film. And um, yeah, it's beautiful. So describe music supervision, because it does sound fabulous. So as a music supervisor, essentially you are in charge of all the music in a film or TV project. And, you know, and it can, it, the job can vary from project to project, but 
basically any music that appears in the project, you know, you are in charge of that. And, and it's a very collaborative thing. And, and as I say, like very different project to project, because sometimes you'll be working with a director who basically knows every song they want and the exact composer that they want to work with. And, and essentially you are there just to sort of uh, enable that. Or, you know, it might be that the director, you know, isn't so sure that wants to be introduced to, you know, to to songs or composers. And you're almost a bit of a, a, a matchmaker when yeah. it comes to that. But yeah, it's, it, and you're kind of, you're one of the usually, and this is my preferred way of working, you, you're usually one of the longest people on a job because... You come on at script stage, partly because there may be songs written into the script that you need to clear before. Maybe there's even, you know, a performance of some some songs. And then you go all the way through. Maybe you have to go on set if there is live music um, to kind of manage that. Then into the edit, you're there, you know, suggesting songs, clearing songs. And then you're right at the end doing all the paperwork um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, the admin side yeah. of things. So, yeah. so, yeah, it can be a really long process. Um, obviously not intense all the time. So there'll be moments when it's really intense and then it sort of might go, you know, drift off for a month or so. And then suddenly there's a, you know, a, a new edit or something and you've got to go back in and all the studio comes back and doesn't like the songs and you've got to, you know, start again. But yeah, it's often a year or more that you're you're on a project. The kind of theme of this podcast is looking at the kind of idea of curation. That is very much the role of a music supervisor. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially if it is that, you know, the version where your director does want suggestions and, and want that kind of collaboration. So, for example, recently I seem to have done quite a few um, period pieces. And when I say mm. period, I mean, you know, more, mostly in the kind of 20th century, but but very specific years. And that kind of requires going down that sort of curation because, yes, it has to be specific. But if you're going for, you know, period accuracy, but you also want to find things that other people haven't used, which obviously gets harder and harder the more things that, yeah. are, that are made. So, um, so yeah, that's that's definitely a big... And that's, that's a gorgeous part of the job. It's really... Has there ever been a time when you've been working on a project and you've seen a piece of film and thought, I know exactly the track that I'm going to put in there? I have. And it's funny because, because you do have them. And it's a bit like magic when that happens and, and when you sort of play something to picture and it, and it just works. And, and I love that. And not only that, but then if you play it to the director and they feel exactly the same about it, it's really, it is really wonderful. It can also be super hard because if, if for whatever reason you can't clear that song, yeah, then you're all in love with it and <laughs> either you can't afford it or there's some kind of issue around it. But, um, but yes, when, when that happens, it's sort of, it's pretty obvious, actually. It's sort of, you, you know, you wonder if it is going to be, but it is. It works. I grew up in South East London and I have two sisters who are 10 and 11 years older than me. They were a massive, massive influence. You know, in a way, it was kind of a shortcut to having incredible kind of access and um, knowledge of music without even having to try because both of them love music um both of them had quite different tastes in a way I mean some crossover but um 
Sasha, my elder sister, was really into kind of reggae and soul and um, boxy music, things like that. Mm. Rachel was like much more into punk and post-punk and yes, yeah, so much influence from them, which was amazing. My parents, are kind of they both loved music in quite specific ways. So they weren't the kind of parents who had like pop radio on at all. They would never have that. It was like absolutely, it was like a Radio yeah. 4 house always. <laughs> they had their artists that they absolutely loved. For example, my dad, he loved the Everly Brothers. Like that was mm. just, and he was so kind of, like, I think he just really saw like the art of what they did. And he just, for him, that was kind of perfection. And then particularly Simon and Garfunkel, like that's what, my sisters remember, like he, he would always like sing them to sleep with feeling groovy. That was like their kind of, but by the time I came along and the, the thing that I always think of is actually more Paul Simon and Graceland. Graceland was just nonstop. Like even now my mum plays it all the time. So, yeah. so they had their very specific things that they loved and that I learned things through. Did you buy records? That's interesting because again, because my parents had this quite kind of, uh, they, they so my father was a, was an artist he was um head of ceramics department at goldsmiths college for 30 years and my mum also worked at goldsmiths and art was their big thing so we never had a very commercial influence and so for example they didn't have a television they didn't have a television until I'm trying to think what it would be. What, what was the World Cup '82 or, or '84? When when my dad's best friend came to stay, and he couldn't believe they didn't have a TV, and he was so <laughs> obsessed with watching the World Cup that he bought them a television. So like we didn't have a television until then. So my sisters really didn't, and then I, you know, it was like was funny things. Like I remember particularly my mum, like not wanting me to watch Sesame Street, that she thought that was a kind of like an American influence <laughs> that would. If I think back, and it probably made me want that more, you know, in the same yeah. way as like, in the same way that I was so jealous of my friends that went on holiday to the Costa del Sol, and you know that was never going to happen in our. We were much more likely to end up in a kind of rundown farmhouse that was an old artist friend of theirs in you know in the Welsh borders or something. Which of course now I'm so happy that that is much more yeah. interesting and whatever. But at the time. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that buying records wasn't really their thing. They didn't yeah. really, um, really. So my sisters definitely like they bought things themselves. You know, they definitely went out and and because I had access to that, I guess I was a bit spoiled. And then there are some really random things that I remember being like spies like us. I remember buying the seven inches that. Yeah. Um, and I can't think what year that is, but I mean, oh, it's like I must have been under 10 or something. But I remember being like, I saw the film and I loved the, like that song. And, and then I don't think I even understood that Paul McCartney was the Beatles. Like I didn't. So it was just sort of very random bits that I would, I would pick up. So I think, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Sasha, my elder sister, her father-in-law, um, Clive Arrowsmith is a, photographer and he he shot the um cover of band on the run that you know the oh, famous wow. photo yeah. of them in the in the spotlight is is Clive so he's always really good for sort of stories about about those kinds of things 
Let's move then to the chosen time that you are going to have a look at. Why have you chosen this time? Well, really, I've chosen this time and <laughs> because this is the only now tape that I yeah. ever had. And I, I remember it being like a big deal for me. I listened to the radio a lot. I kind of, I guess myself, found capital, I guess, at that time was the mm. thing I listened to all the time. Yes, yeah, so I remember I asked for a tape player, like a tape-to-tape kind of thing for, yeah. for, for Christmas, for that like Christmas 1990. And I asked for the the now 18. Yeah. And so that's when kind of together, and that's again like why it's quite a kind of a big moment, is because not only then... I have my own sort of uh, proper tape player to to listen to now 18 on. But I also had the double tape player, the dream of being yes. able to record off the radio, um, make compilations. And um, yeah, that was, I feel like it was a big moment in the kind of broadening out of everything. Suddenly it went from just like the things I could find in my parents or sister's collections to me having a bit more autonomy over. Yeah. So actually you've, you've ticked a good few boxes there because your first now album was a Christmas present. So that's a tick. You have now begun recording off the radio. That's a tick. And you've started your own creation. (laughs) So, yeah, big, big moment all round. Now 18 brings you the massive number one from the Righteous Brothers. The beautiful South, Jimmy Somerville. Elton John, Phil Collins, Robert Palmer, UB40. Tina Turner, the latest from Soul to Soul, Kim Appleby. 32 top chart hits. Now, that's what I call music. Let's just rewind back. So now 18, it was released on the 19th of November 1990. So you're getting this as a really fresh Christmas present. And it's got a fascinating blend of tracks across it as well. It really does. Um, It was a total treat to go back to, actually. What we often talk about in the podcast is that, you know, it's a snapshot of a time. It's not a a revisited version of Autumn 1990. This is what was obviously in Genuinely the charts. Bit, yeah. But what's going to be interesting as we go through it as well, and I'm sure you've picked this deliberately, Lucy, there mm. are a lot of TV and film connections across this I album. I know, and it's so funny because I really didn't pick it deliberately. <laughs> it's genuinely the only one I, I, I had. and But I agree. Again, as I was going back, I was thinking, is this the genesis of my career in this, <laughs> you know, in this compilation? Because so many of the songs, one way or another, are linked to film and TV. I'm, I'm just picturing 12-year-old you hearing tracks, maybe picturing a scene in your head as you're recording, possibly illegally off the radio, <laughs> like we all did. Totally. <laughs> and and vice versa, seeing them being used to, you know, having seen the film and and thinking, oh, wow, you know, that's how it works. That's sort of- Yeah, I'm going to go with this theory, Lucy. I'm going to say now 18 <laughs> has taken you to where you are today. Record one, side one. Oh, no, sorry. And you're, it's cassette one, isn't it? It's cassette, yes. I was thinking, yes. Um, and we kick off with a big number one of the year, which is The Beautiful South and A Little Time. Yeah, what a gorgeous song. It's interesting because it's kind of like... It's quite a delicate one to start off with in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because it kind of varies. Sometimes now has that big launch track at the beginning of it. But actually, this is a big song. It's a big song. And what I I think one of the things I love about it is it's got that classic duet thing. I mean, a little bit like Fairy Tale of New York or Don't You Want Me. It's that kind of, you know, man and woman duet 
really clever lyrics, beautiful lyrics, like a, a proper story. Yeah, it really takes you somewhere. Gorgeous voices. It's, yeah, I love this song. It won Best Video at the Brits. Did it? So Yeah, that, so- it was a clever video. It was, you know, like a proper sort of, again, like a mini film almost, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Interesting to look back. I mean, and, and probably at that time, I didn't know anything. Like I would only, I would just have known the song and the, mm. and the name of the band, but um, not known the kind of like the intricacies of Heaton and whatever, you know, sort of yeah. the, the things that then go on to be so important in, in many different ways. But you, I would imagine, view this album and some of the songs in this quite differently now looking back. Totally. Yeah. And, and being able to put it in that context, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, mm. Bit in the same way of not knowing that Paul McCartney and the Beatles, you know, not knowing yeah. Paul Heaton, Beautiful South, House Martins, like, you know, all of that sort of connections yeah. that really I only like put together after the fact. I suppose the beauty of pop culture is that you can swim backwards and forwards and, totally. and make all these discoveries, you know. So let's go to track two, um, which is an old track. Um, first TV link of the album. Um, because this is one of those Levi's adverts. So it we have is. got Steve Miller and the Joker. I mean, where does it, this song? I often think like it's one of those magic. Where did it come from? Like it's so perfect. It's mm. so ingenious, and you know, and you know it from two bars. Not even two bars. But first bar, yeah. you just like it seems to kind of come from the universe it's a gift from the universe that, that he channeled <laughs> yeah and there was that fabulous way that the levi's ads and obviously a lot of the tv ads at that time just seemed to pick tracks i mean i didn't know this song at the time um, I, I hadn't heard either. it either i mean and and so therefore wouldn't have known wouldn't have known any no. backstory about steve miller wouldn't have known when it was recorded or anything but my god i mean and all of those those uh Levi's as particularly the kind of the late 80s 90s ones are just so genius I mean I it's like no wonder they sold millions of pairs of their shoes who wouldn't want to buy a pair after you've seen I mean and particularly this one I love because because I think it was I think quite a lot of those those Levi's ads were were made by RSA Ridley Scott yeah, um, yeah. productions weren't they yeah and I think the guy that made this was a Ridley Scott kind of he was his DP wasn't he on on yeah. a few projects yeah um which again you can see like it, it's like a mini film it's just like yeah. a scene from a film and I mean even at well I say even at maybe especially at 12 turning 13 you know <laughs> the idea of this like unbelievably gorgeous guy on a motorbike driving yeah. into this wall street so everything about it seems incredibly exotic and romantic and yeah. kind of you know super cool and yeah the song just works so perfectly and it is that perfect synergy of visual and the audio coming together totally and i think at a time like especially then maybe like that late 80s 90s the us just seemed of course like the coolest place yeah. in the world and and that ad looked and sounded like I imagined America yeah. was. 
Yeah, it was <laughs> it was still an aspiration. It was yeah. still this this kind of thing, and it ties all that up together. And, and again, I could was... get it by buying that pair of jeans, which it's... I absolutely did. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's but you know you think back to those kind of runs of tracks. There was like Marvin Gaye was used, Benny King, yes. um, T Rex, all these great tracks. The Clash. I mean, they're only Clash. number one, right? That's right. Yeah. So it just it just worked incredibly well. So so there we oh, go. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to know who actually made those decisions i'm totally kind of fascinated from a you know music supervisor point of view whether it was the director whether it was some ad agency yeah and i'm, and I'm yeah. sure somebody knows but i yeah anybody listening know. get in touch with lucy yes <laughs> let, let us know <laughs> and let me know <laughs> as well genius. so track three we've got three number ones in a row which actually for now album is quite rare because they've actually backed quite a lot of the big hits of the year and it's sacrificed by elton john a big comeback record for elton john it was a big moment no, it for was him. it really was and you know i definitely feel like it, even at that age i understood this was a comeback you know mm. i i would have known really more like the 70s songs and, and early 80s songs just from them being played on the radio. Yeah. Um, but this, yeah, this definitely felt like a, a big moment. I adore him and I adore him and Bernie together as songwriters. I just think it's... It's a perfect combination, this one. It really is. And you, you can feel all of the energy coming through it. I mean, it's such a beautiful song. It's a human sign. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful lyric from Bernie. So wonderful. I, I was really like I was invited by Universal Records to a, a sort of Q&A that Bernie and Elton did a few years ago at BAFTA. And obviously, you know, you've heard Elton talk a lot. Elton can't mm. stop talking about it, which I, I love. I've, I've listened to him for, forever. But um, but it was so interesting hearing Bernie talk about it. And, and I kind of fell in love with him because he's, in a way, he's completely the invisible partner yeah. in, yeah. in this you know yeah. which which clearly he loves and I think like feels like he's got the sort of the best deal in a way yeah. but um yeah. but he was so sweet and he was you know so supportive of Elton in a way you could really mm. still see this love that they have for each other that must have had some crazy you know obviously crazy times together for different reasons but um yeah, it was adorable seeing them together. Really lovely. Yeah. Four weeks at number one. And I think... And the triggered... video with Chris Isaac in the video. Which yeah, is, I, yeah. I kind of want to know how that came. That's sort of know, odd, isn't it? How did he end up in the video? For? Again, it's a wonderful... 90s aesthetic look to that video that black and white totally. look it's just fabulous it really is yeah Yasmin yeah. Gary looking just like a you know the supermodel that she is and yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's film link number one coming up which is Roxette from a rather small indie film of the year called Pretty <laughs> Woman <laughs> My God. I mean, I remember that scene, watching that film so much, because I, I I saw it at a, a sleepover party, like a friend's birthday sleepover. Ooh. Was that an illicit and watching of it? I think possibly her parents didn't really know what it was. But yeah, I mean, what a massive moment. Mind-blowing in all sorts of ways. Just, uh, I love it now. I think this is just like some, such a perfect film in a way. It's really lasting. Yeah. But also its use of music is brilliant. Again, it's really, really well curated music throughout that film. 
it's an example of one of those albums, one of those soundtrack albums that just connected, I suppose like Dirty Dancing. It was just that connection between the film and, and the sound. It really was. And again, like Gene, I mean, I don't know whether it was the director, whether it was the music supervisor, but the choices. And because mm. this song was already out, wasn't it? It was strange, like a, a Christmas song or something? Yeah, yeah. This, this had been released. It's full title. It must have been Love Christmas for the Broken Hearted, it was called. So it had already been around. It's one of those tracks, again, when you hear those drums start at the beginning, you know exactly what's coming. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Now, talking about drums, Something Happened on the Way to Heaven by Phil Collins. I love this song. I mean, I love Phil. Again, another one of those ones where I probably didn't realise his link with Genesis. I probably, you know, I, I no. probably I knew the Genesis songs that would have been played on the radio. I probably didn't realise it was the same person in a way. But what I did know, because I saw the film and loved it, was Buster. So... I had that in my mind and I love this video. It's yeah. a genius video. If anyone hasn't seen this video, they must immediately watch it <laughs> from a dog's point of view. A dog who has a sort of like dream. Yeah. <laughs> dream of I've got a dream to be in a Phil Collins video and this is what it's going to look yeah. like. This was Phil at his probably his biggest. It was Phil at his most fillest as well. You've got the trumpets on there, the big drums, the big chorus. And it's it's just it's got hit written all over it. Hit written amazing musicians playing on it. Because Dominic Miller plays on it, doesn't he? And mm-hmm, then it's mm-hmm. like that incredible brass group and yeah. Track six, um, which also got to number six in the charts. I've written down here. There we go. Hold on by Wilson Phillips. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that song again. It feels like obviously a song I've almost known all my life. So it's mm. so deep in your DNA. Those voices together. Yeah, I remember the interesting. This is one of the ones where I do remember my sister Rachel kind of explaining to me <laughs> who the girls were, what the link was to you know previous generations of yeah. of musician and um, playing me, you know the Beach Boys and the Mums and the Pups and whatever, just to sort of put it all in picture. So funny enough, that is something that I remember, like I knew from the beginning mm, from mm-hmm. her explaining that connection. Um, but yeah, gorgeous. And then, oh, funny, because that video is Julian Temple. I mean, it doesn't look like, to me, like a Julian Temple. I didn't know that. Is video. It? Oh. But it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's it's in the canyon and it's, it's the kind of... Big... Totally, it's so kind of California and uh, yeah. on the beach and in the, yeah, in the canyon and the woods. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Julian Temple. To be fair um, to Julian Temple, though, you could imagine the call saying, would you like to come out to absolutely. California <laughs> for a couple of weeks? And uh, um, yeah, yeah, I could probably fit you in, yeah. Totally. <laughs> and it's probably just come off the back of him directing um what absolute beginners would have been a few. Yeah, it was a few years back. So years back. So maybe he was on a bit of a kind of like yeah, surprise so. and and they, you know, someone probably picked him up as thinking, oh, that's a cool decision. And yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah I'm so gonna have was... to go I'm gonna have to go back and watch that video now and actually Yeah, I know and see. Yeah. Um, so. but and um, then of course it being used in bridesmaids, which yes, was yeah. Such yeah. a, you know, a genius move all round and it being the girls themselves and everything. So, yeah, yeah I love and it's, that. And it takes that film and it, you know, can takes a song into a different context and suddenly again you think, oh, that's that's perfect. You know, it's, it, it's, it's that connection. Brilliant. Okay, so we are working towards the end of side one of your cassette with, I suppose, what you would consider 
a bona fide classic. Uh, Nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. I mean, where do you even start with this? It's just Prince is. Well, he was my first con- like proper concert, uh, yeah. having uh, only been to local kind of friends bands or whatever. That he was first uh, concert, which was Els Court. I mean, I can remember it so. It's funny when memory goes a bit and kind of hardly remember things yesterday, but that I can remember so clearly. I can particularly remember the fact that. I mean, I had such a mega crush on him. And obviously, you know, even though I was only like 13, obviously thought that I was going to end up marrying him. And I remember on the way in, we'd gone into McDonald's. I was with with sort of my friend and I wasn't really allowed McDonald's. So it was a bit of an exciting treat. And I got a chocolate milkshake and I couldn't finish it before we went in. And so I took the lid off to try and kind of like drink it instead. And I remember the whole thing just fell on my face completely covered in chocolate milkshake it's so funny because I do remember at the time thinking oh my god Prince is gonna see this like and that's it it's over my dreams of marrying him are over so yeah I mean just one of the I I still now feel the loss of him in a way that I it's really painful and I know like I I was sad when David Bowie died but somehow that felt kind of like in the order of the universe like it was time or something but with Prince it did not feel like it was time oh and I yeah so the foundation of this song being the fact that he you know wrote one of the greatest songs ever her performance is unbelievable that video which of course everyone just sort of was mesmerized by which again, that's another interesting kind of quite art house director, isn't it? Because that's John Mabry. Which again, you know, and and watching it back, you can see it's so beautifully shot. One of those songs that when you hear it, that's the image you have. Totally. Um, yeah. And so strong. The whole thing's so strong. I have to say, it's one of those songs that even though it is one of my favourite songs, if I'm at all in a kind of sad or depressed mood, I cannot listen to it because it is that strong for me that I sort of it will tip me over. Yeah, yeah. It's one that just completely resonates down the years. Yeah. Um, it sounds as fresh as it did the day it was released. It's Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so last track on side one is, our, again, another film link, and it's a biggie. Um, it's Unchained Melody, Pottery Wheel. I mean, again, what a, what a song. <laughs> what a film. Yeah. <laughs> what a moment. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if I did know the song before I saw that film, but I certainly didn't know it in the way mm. that I knew it after seeing the film. I mean, yeah, well, it's that's, just... yeah. It's, you know, like so many films that we've kind of talked about on this side, it's an image that absolutely just ties that song from there on. Yeah. yeah. And also like the good and the bad as well, in a way, because, yeah. because yeah. You, the, the hilarious sort of, I think, didn't French and Saunders do a really funny you know, version of it? And yeah, there's, it's brilliant. It's very yeah. easy to, to do that because it's so iconic. But yeah. um, I think as well, also picking a Righteous Brothers song that wasn't You've Lost That Love and Feeling, which had obviously had a big prominent yeah. place in Top Gun, I think, a few years yeah. earlier. Um, but it, it was bringing a song back. I agree. And what I actually didn't know 
until well probably this time last year was was it had come from the film I didn't realize that Unchained Melody yeah was because it was the melody from the song from, from the film Unchained I mean it's yeah. like of course it makes perfect sense once you once you know yeah. um and I've never seen that film it met, in fact it, I'd like to I think it seems like a kind of a classic mm. but I don't know if you've looked at the clip from that film where it is first sung and it's amazing extraordinary performance by the actor Todd Dunkel his name is and and the reason I sort of I guess delved into it about a year ago is because I was clearing it for after some so I uh, went on a bit of a rabbit hole with it and as you know that um, Alex North who had written the score for the film Unchained as well as Spartacus and yeah the 2001 that no one heard and yeah all of that it met you know amazing film composer and then brought in high zarek to do the for the lyrics for the song i mean the song is sort of so powerful and important that in fact um i mean he kept the publishing and it's his daughter-in-law who runs unchained melody publishing wow <laughs> which is basically to look after the one song that's like yeah. how it is so um abby north and she was absolutely wonderful to deal with you know because there we were you know a really small film coming to and she was just wonderful to work with on that so um yeah, huge thanks to her. And it's, and it's a it's a lovely moment in in an after sun. Wouldn't it be fabulous if we could start forgetting pottery wheels and Patrick Swayze and we could move <laughs> on? We we could move on to in 30 years' time people saying, Oh, it's just after sun, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> exactly. <so>. Let's see <laughs> if uh, let's hope. Let's happen. hope so. So we flipped over to side two and we have got Belinda Carlisle and we want the same thing. I love Belinda Carlisle. I love the Go-Go's. This isn't mm. my favourite song of hers, I would say. This was the fifth single to come off the Runaway Horses album. That says That's a lot. crazy, isn't it? That's like, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> For a fifth single, it's still really good. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's 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 actually, if, we, if you had a, a tick list of Belinda things... They're all there. There's the big chorus. There's the there's the chanting. There's the punching the ear. And I think because it's it's written by like the same guy who wrote Heaven Is a Place on Earth and things like that, isn't it? So yeah, um, Rick Knowles. So it, it, yeah, as you say, it's got the ingredients. But but yeah, she's and she's fab. And yeah. I've always been slightly kind of um, she's married to James Mason's son, mm. Morgan yeah. Mason, and um, our father was really close with with James and and who who collected his work our father's work so I've always wondered since since James died if like his work is in Belinda's house <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of been like my number one thing if I ever got to to meet her then I could ask if she if she had my father's horse sculptures in their house okay track two is status quo um the anniversary waltz brackets part I mean, one <laughs> <laughs> Which means there's another one. Did anyone need a part two? <laughs> I hope not. Really... I hope not. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, which would be similarly, I mean, bonkers. And it basically sounds like the same song all the way through, even though there are sort of multiple, yep. it's a medley. But, um, and which yep. is kind of what, I guess, status quo, I feel, due to everything. <laughs> Like, I know, just I know. All, all stages, and I, yeah. I don't even mean that badly. It's kind of like it's their thing. It works for them. Is <laughs> it works? But again, though, this is the crazy world of now. It basically says this is what people were buying, and let's not forget exactly. this made this made number two in the charts. 
let's swiftly move on. In Excess, um, this was the first single from the X album. Um, so this is comeback time for Michael Hutchinson and the band. Suicide Blonde. So this is off X, isn't it? And and yeah. Kick had been before. Both of those albums was enormous. Weren't I mean, they're just oh, yeah. sort of huge. And, and so I knew the songs from the radio, but I always had, even then, like slightly wasn't that interested for some reason. And mm. I don't know, it didn't, like for some reason, it didn't really click with me. And yeah. then there was this kind of like confusing moment of the fact that he and Kylie were going, and I was going probably through this transition from being like a young Kylie fan, like, you know, and mm. and I love Kylie now. I mean, I've always loved her, but that sort of was odd because it's like, oh, they're together. What does that mean? So, yeah. And then funnily enough, I feel like now, I don't know if you saw the documentary about him. I did, yeah. I sort of have a revisionist view and actually going back to those songs, I really love some of them. Not particularly Suicide Blonde, although I do think it is kind of genius, particularly in it, maybe it's in, in its production. It's Chris mm. Thomas produced, isn't it? And, and yeah. there is, again, there's like something that you, within a second, you know it's this song and probably Never Tear Us Apart. I think that's that. That I think is actually a genius song. Yeah. Now, like that, that kind of has has gone up into like one of those songs I feel is in my pantheon. I met him once when so when I was working at Mute with Nick Cave, and of course he and Nick were really close friends. Yeah. Um, and so when Nick played the Royal Albert Hall, he was there. He was there with Helena Christensen, so I got to meet him. And he was just quiet and charming and lovely. Yeah. Um, which, of course, it turns out that he absolutely was. In fact, like this sort of almost that public persona is not really him. But um, I think you I think you touched on it. The Mystified documentary does a lot to actually almost reveal what the real Michael Hutchins was. Because it really does. And of course, and I guess they say that this song was about Kylie, right? Like something about, you know. The kind of story goes, I think, that they started dating in 89 and one of the first public appearances was the premiere of The Delinquents that Kylie had starred in, and they were there, and she wore a blonde wig for that. Uh, Hence. Sounds great, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with that, it works. So we'll move on. Track four is Public Image Limited, John Lydon. It's a song called Don't Ask Me. It was released to promote a Best Of album. I'd sort of forgotten about this song, you know, because in a way for me... You know, it's not metal box. It's not. No, no. But, but actually, I'm listening to it again. It's kind of just a great pop song. And actually, John Lydon's always had that knack. Exactly. And it was also like an amazing band at that point. Like at every mm. point, actually, Pill had has had yeah. brilliant lineups, hasn't it? It's, was it John McGough and, and Bruce Smith? And like, amazing. amazing. I know, I know. I remember at the time getting the cassette copy of this Greatest Hits album and it's brilliant i mean it's really good i bet it is yeah because it just it, it kind of pulls all those tracks together um and finishes with this track so it actually tells almost a narrative right so now and i was listening to the lyrics and i was thinking god you know he's kind of really ahead of his time in so many ways and i don't know if you've seen pistol i mean it's a sort of a mixed bag in terms of what you haven't, you know, haven't seen it yet yeah it's a bit of a pantomime, which is fine. I don't think, I think it's kind of meant to, yeah. to be that. But one of the things I did like about it is that actually I thought, because I've always thought, you know, I know people can what, bring up the butter ads or whatever and sort of, all, you know, 
yeah. multiple <laughs> silly things that he said over the years. Ultimately, I think he's like super cool, mm. really caring. And actually that does come out in the Pistol film and they, you know, they recreate that gorgeous film of when he, you know, took the band to for that Christmas party of the, mm. the minors, the striking minors kids. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, he's really serious about it. He's like, no, you know, this is important. This isn't, you know, this isn't a stunt. This is like an important political thing to be part of and an important thing for these kids. Yeah. And I really like that. And so yeah, it sort of reminded me, this song kind of reminds me a bit of that as well. Okay, next to that. Uh, also promoting a best of the wonderful talk talk it's my life first of all this was released in 1984 first time around this only got to number 46 in the charts that's interesting that's really it was almost too too ahead of its time somehow i don't know didn't get the radio play that it needed or possibly put out again to re-promote the best of talk talk which came out in the summer of 1990 as well and did considerably better number 13 this time around yeah i mean again for me this is one of those songs that feels like it just comes delivered from the universe like how did they come up with every aspect of it the lyrics are beautiful the the sound the production it's just and i definitely didn't know the band and to be honest even now like i have a lot of respect for talk Mm. talk but i don't really know the other songs in the way that I know that this is so yeah. monumental to me that I, yeah, it, it yeah. lives on in its own space, really. That's a lovely way to describe it, actually. It does. It's almost got a universe all of its own, this song. Yeah. I kind of know nothing about him and lots of people seem like there isn't much known about him. I think he sort of kind of turned his back on the music industry, went off to live yeah. a normal life, and which I totally respect. And, yeah. And I think has increased the legacy and the kind of mystery around Talk Talk because their canon of work is is such a complete piece. Um, and there's probably lots of Talk Talk fans would say, oh, we wish there'd been more. And, you know, who knows? But actually, their albums tell an arc and it's a perfect yeah. one. He delivered this gift to the world and that was it, yes. Yeah. I think you've got a story about this one. Oh, I've got a few stories about this one, actually. <laughs> I feel like this, this song... In a completely different way, almost feels like it was written and recorded all at the same time. Like mm. it, it's, it's perfect to me. Like it's just a, it, it's a truly perfect song. I think it came, it, for me, it feels like this transition. And certainly for me at that age, this transition of, you know, and I, and I knew in the broader sense, call them alternative bands like New Order and The Cure and like, but for me, it felt like my first moment of something that felt from my generation, like all of those had existed or, already. And, but this suddenly felt like, oh, wow, this thing is happening now. It felt very new in a way, even though, of course, like as a song, it, it references sort of whatever, like classic garage band sound in a way. But I was suddenly like, this is yeah, a band for the new generation or a song, a song like an anthem for a new yeah. generation. So it definitely is that transition between kind of 80s and 90s, I would say, that it yeah. marks perfectly. I loved it. I guess I must have heard it on the radio first. And I remember that the following summer, so the 91, we always had uh, every summer a group of students from Louisiana State University coming to stay with us. And there was one who I had a big crush on and and he kept saying to me, I love this band, The Laws. I was thinking, what is he talking? I have no idea. Like what? 
And then I realised he meant the Lars and he meant this song. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, it's actually, it's made it to America as well. This is incredible. This yeah. is, it's a beautiful one. So then exactly when I was working on This Is England 90 with Shane Meadows and it just feels like the absolute perfect song to kind of open that with and and to have that footage of the kind of like the end of Thatcher, beginning of like a new, even though it was still Tories, but some kind of new hope, I suppose, in a way. And um, yeah, it works so, and, and because the opening of the song, again, it's another one where in two seconds you know it and it yeah. puts you in that place. And actually you've touched on something important about this album and about 1990. There was an optimism there was a feeling of change it's evident in a lot of the music that we're hearing here and more so the music probably of 1991 and onwards yeah Yeah. so we're almost at the end of side two not to disrespect tina turner but after the last this is a bit of a come down (laughs) it's a funny segue isn't it (laughs) yeah um you know again it's it's not her greatest song by quite a long way and even though it's like these two classic songwriters holly knight and albert hammond i mean it's, it's amazing between them they've got a lot of hits yeah this is this is I ended, you know I ended up having a, a, a kind of a, a super fun night out with Holly Knight once because she'd come to London and through a, a mutual connection of our mutual friend had said oh she she really wants to go to Soho House and and at the time we had a membership and so we took her to Soho House and it was just a kind of the funniest night because she just sat and told story. It was like it was amazing, you know, everything from kind of, you know, how she started out as like a teenager. I think she dated Gene Simmons. That's like in New York. So that's how she started like in with the Kiss lot and wrote, started writing songs for Kiss and then she co-wrote Love is a Battlefield and Simply the Best. I mean, it's like, how do you even begin to think about life without those two songs? It's, it's, it's just odd. And, and someone created that and, and it was it was her. Yeah, yeah she was awesome. Um, <laughs> and then we finish off this side with Robert Palmer and UB40, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because again, you can immediately hear, hear the, the UB40, it's like, yeah. It's just the UB40 sound, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And the Royal Farmer sound. And I I mean, I adore Bob Dylan, but I often actually like covers of Bob Dylan songs as much, if not more, yeah. than his originals. And which, which I think it takes nothing from him. It actually means that he writes such great songs that, you know, they can be interpreted in many ways and and sound amazing still. But yeah, this is just super fun, isn't it? I mean, like to give it that kind of like, to turn it from essentially a country song to a yeah. kind of reggae song. <laughs> yeah. And and as you see, it, it's the ability to, to spot the brilliant songwriting of Bob Dylan and to be able to adapt it and, and change it, you know, and it's it's UB40 doing to this what they did to Red Red Wine. Exactly. Uh, basically. Yeah. And it's 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 taking something and moving it on. And, and this just sits nicely, finishes upside two really well. And there we are. You're enjoying this, aren't you? <laughs> Fantastic. We go. I wish I wish I'd had more now to talk about. <laughs> Let's move on then to cassette two, side one, which is looking quite dancey. We're starting with the Pet Shop Boys and So Hard. I love the Pet Shop Boys. I have to say, this isn't one of my favourite songs of theirs I think it's you know 
it's great. If it came on, I wouldn't fast forward it. But uh, it's probably, yeah, it's probably not in my yeah. top. Interesting video, if you've if you've not seen it. It's filmed in and around Newcastle and Whitley Bay. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I, isn't there some, some rumour that Paul Gascoigne's sister is in it? I believe so. Yeah, that's worth going back to YouTube for, isn't it? Totally. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, because Harold Fortemeyer produced it, didn't he? So, so I mean, a nut, like amazing team and amazing sound. It's more interesting because it comes from the the album Behavior, which actually is a very deep, rich, melancholy album, and this th- this song actually stands out on it. And- yeah, true. <laughs> Next to that, we've got fascinating rhythm, basomatic, but more interestingly is William Orbit. Yeah, and it's of course, again, like at the time, I'd have had no idea who basomatic was. And and at that point, even if I had known it's William Orbit, it wouldn't even have had the sort of the the future, <laughs> the, yeah. the yeah. future context to put that in. But looking back, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's a great song. It's like a proper classic, really, like a dancey classic. You can hear the work with Madonna coming. You can hear the work okay. with All Saints. But yes, that's still to come. Okay, next to that we have, I suppose you could argue one of the biggest bands of 1989-90, Soul to Soul. Kim Mazell on vocals. It's called Missing You. Wow, they were huge, weren't they? Like those two albums, back to back. I grew up in South London and kind of like Mm. definitely and went to school near Brixton. And so definitely like you felt like that new soul sound just became. And I remember going to like the club nights at the Africa Centre and and then later at the fridge and things like that. And it was like, yeah. And it it really felt, I mean, Jazzy B's kind of a genius, isn't it? Like it's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just managed to capture a moment make it sound like yes there's all the influences but then make it really make it his own and yeah yeah and it was it was very much a uk soul sound as well which was so uk yeah totally and these beautiful singers that oh yeah lots of love for jazzy b and nice to hear it on now 18 tom's diner uh which is suzanne vega this this is this is just one of those great stories really isn't it it's like let's take an acapella track and turn it into uh, a huge yeah, dance track. Yeah, because the original is weird, isn't it? It's like totally just like, I have to say, I hate this song. <laughs> I hate the original and I hate the remix. I just, I don't know what, like I can't even explain. There's no yeah. logic to it. It's just one of those songs yeah. that I can't bear. And, and I think it I, was omnipresent in 1990. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I used to get the coach, to, you know, to school with the school coach and, and the radio we're playing. And I mean, I must have heard it just hundreds and hundreds of times what it does do in this album though there's three songs in a row here on side three that are what you would consider big remixes of 80s songs because next to that we've got sting an englishman in new york which was a remix uh, from 1988 where do you stand with this one then I don't love it it's an interesting like i kind of have a real nostalgia for it and i think somehow sort of um, transcends the actual sound of it somehow. I yeah. love, you know, I love the fact that it's Quentin Crisp. I love the fact that he was in the video. Oh, know, the yeah. David Fincher video. I mean, it's like, it's incredible, isn't it? Like, I know, I know. So, um, so I kind of love it almost in a kind of uh, academic way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it needed a remix because the original track actually, without the kind of 
drum beats and the basses and breakdown bit yeah yeah it's, yes it's already there so yeah so yeah. and again watching the video back now it is an incredible piece of cinematography david it fincher is, and really to kind of cap because he can't have died much after that so it's like it sort of captures him at a, mo- a real moment in literally yeah. in new york I mean, it's amazing yeah. and sting looks amazing in the video as well just so amazing. I went to see him uh, in April. Um, again, actually, Universal kindly invited me, and and it, he was playing at the Palladium. And I thought, you know what? Actually, in the Palladium, that would be amazing to see him in a you know theatre, mm. not a stadium. And it was so much fun. I mean, you know, he's like it's a strange. He's not one of my favourite artists in a way, but but when you you can't help it when you hear those songs. Yeah. It almost feels like they're sort of in your DNA and somehow you just like know every word and you, you know, particularly the police songs. It's, like, it's kind of, it was kind of incredible. And he, and he delivered it. Like he just basically did the hits. He didn't even, I think he did maybe one new song. He didn't, like, yeah, he didn't try to do the. <laughs> this is from my new album, my new everybody. Album. Yeah, I know. Close to me by The Cure. This is a, a remix that I would say divided Cure fans considerably. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and, I adore them. I think, I, and I always ha- have done. I didn't really think of the remix. I think it's because my sister had the album, so that's what I listened to. So when this came on, it probably just felt like I don't know, like a slight blip in the. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, a slight blip. I mean, looking back now, they're almost two different songs, and exactly, and, you know, they serve different purposes. In some ways, this was the cure beginning that kind of indie dance thing that Primal Scream had done. Yeah. And, and it works, you know. It's, and of course, you've got Paul Oakenfold remixing it, so it's going to work. What, what is interesting is a Tim Pope video. Yes. And, Tim, and, and he'd done the original video with the wardrobe falling off each right. But actually added in new bits for the new video. So that's quite cool. Yeah, I love that. I love. I mean, God, he was making because we've had another Tim Pope video in in our selection already, haven't we? I can't remember which one, but yeah. what? Yeah, that must have been what a time making those videos with proper budgets. My God, <laughs> incredible! I know. Track seven is Nina Cherry. I've got you under my skin. So this is this is from the Cole Porter Red Hot and Blue project, which was massive in 1990. It's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, I actually hadn't listened to that song for quite a while. What she did with it was so clever and so important, obviously, in the context of the project and, you know, for that moment in time. I mean, 1990, AIDS was still like such a weird, almost taboo disease. You can't really believe it now. Yeah, it's it's horrible to think of it. But it, it kind of looking back on this song and that project, it feels even more important maybe than it kind of, Somehow yeah. did at the time. I can remember watching it back, just trying to spot all the pop stars. Um, right. Do you know, because there was a lot of artists were involved in the project, but actually it was, you know, the importance of raising awareness. And I think, I mean, I think to date they've raised something like 10 million pounds plus. Uh, it's so, incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, for age relief and awareness around the world. So it's, it, it's important, but I think, yeah, as you say, it's an amazing, it's taking a song and really making it your own, which Nina Cherry does here. Yeah, and and all props to Cole Porter Estate as well for kind of allowing that because she changes it completely. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. Finally, on the dance side, I suppose there's a bit more dance to come later when we flip the cassette over. But Blue Pearl, uh, Little Brother, Naked in the Rain had been such a big song. When I came to this, I couldn't remember this one. No, what <laughs> to say it? I couldn't no. remember it. No, well, to be honest, you're in good company because it only got to number thirty-one, but. 
if if people don't know, and I know a lot of people will, but Blue Peril has quite a legacy. You know, it's it's youth. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, some had this particular song just did. Yeah, I just no, no. <laughs> it was and a surprise I, to me to rediscover it. I know, and it's and it kind of comes and it goes, and and there we are. Naked in the Rain was such a big iconic track for the summer, yeah, nineteen ninety. You know, you just wonder would it have sounded better on here, perhaps, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Youth, I've got a lot of time for. Kind of love him. I went round to his house a few years ago when a, a, a an artist I was working with was working with him. He was just great. He was like exactly how you want him to be. He kind of showed me his his studio, which also had like a an easel and paints. And he's yeah. like, oh, he basically just got stoned and either either made music or painted. And I thought that's amazing. Well, I think is that not the big connection with him and Paul McCartney? Because I think they they kind of came together over art um, oh, and painting. So because obviously Youth and Paul worked together on the Fireman yes. project, and I know on the um, the Electric Arguments album, there's fabulous photographs inside of them, both painting and... Oh, I love it. Just getting stoned and painting together. What brilliant. Sounds, what did you do today? <laughs> I got stoned and painted with Paul McCartney. Right, so we're flipping the cassette over and, you know, we've given Kylie a mention already, but let, let's do props to Kylie. Step back in time. Yeah, I will always love Kylie. And really, inter- I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, having her and In Excess on, on the same thing and seeing kind of where they are. I mean, she's yeah. very much still stopped Aiken and Walterman, isn't she, in this? Yeah, so, and it's it's a kind of interesting handover transition period for Kylie because it is still very much talking in Waterman but the sound and the aesthetics changing a bit trying to exactly like inch forward into into something else yeah yeah you watch the video back for this and it's Nick Egan that's done the video right. for it and yeah which is amazing because I mean I always think of his like, graphics for or the Clash yeah. and for Dexies yeah. and whatever and yeah, but, to, to then get him to make this video. It is. But, you know, you watch it back and it's got, you know, that kind of 70s disco, yes. 80s feel thing going on that D-Light were doing so well in exactly. 1990. Pete Waterman has his finger completely on the button here. He knows what he's doing. It works perfectly well. I mean, it's it just nods to everything in all the right places. Yeah. So good that she named her best off after it. So, you know, let's be honest, it can't be that bad. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, Kim Appleby. And don't worry. This was the debut solo single for Kim. I hadn't realised how quickly this came after the death yeah. of Mel. It's really, God, that must have been just a shocking year all round. Yeah. Um, and for then to her to come back with this, it's kind of amazing. I was watching back one of the reruns of Top of the Pops that they do. There's a clip of her singing this on it. And it's it's a, it's an incredibly emotional performance um, because That's it is it, it is a very very positive song. But when you know the story, first time on top of the pops on her own, on her own when she's always been with us, yeah, just, yes. you know, looking back and knowing the story and watching it now, that must have been an incredibly hard and brave thing for her to do. Totally, yeah. yeah. If you want 1990 rolled into one track, it's track three. It's oh a technotronic mega mix. I mean, what? Like, it's again, it's just the sound of that. You know, in, in that area of 1990, yeah. it is the sort of defining sound. Yeah. 
Technotronic have released four singles since 1988. And what should we do? 1990, we'll roll them all together and sell them back to you again. And <laughs> Genius. <laughs> there we are. Who's I exactly, you know, who's laughing? Totally. <laughs> I don't know if Timmy Mallet says 1990. It probably oh does gosh, actually. I know. I mean, Long Ballerina. Yeah, it's again, it's I mean, it's so British, isn't it? You can't it is. imagine this existing in any nope. other country. It's nope. kind of weird. Like it comes in the same like as Carry On or as like anything, yeah. you know, Benny Hill. It's well, bonkers. It's how do you describe to anybody who isn't British this track in 1990? Nineteen ninety, right? Getting the same getting, year that we've got. There she goes. Ah, uh-huh. and this gets number one for the best part of a month. Brian Highland had the track in nineteen sixty, and of course it is Nigel Wright and Andrew Lloyd Webber behind all of this. That's right, it is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it just gets worse. I didn't see that on the Jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Actually, do you know what? Timmy Mallet was probably waiting for the phone call. Let's be honest. Yes. Probably, you probably could have seen him in Mallet's mallet on top of a bus, couldn't you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to throw in some absolutely horrible Timmy Mallet facts here, and I'll, I'm not no disrespect to Timmy Mallet, he is who he is. But no, absolutely. Yeah. Moving on from that, Timmy Mallet also <laughs> he released a copy in 1991 of a song called "The Bump" by Kenny. I missed that one. He then went on and re-recorded "The Laughing Policeman." With George Martin. Oh, gosh. Um, he then did Hot, Hot, Hot in summer 92 and covered Oh, Wackadoo, Wackadee with Gilbert O'Sullivan. <laughs> and in the middle of that, in 2008, he featured in Skepta's video. <laughs> yeah, I vaguely remember that. that. I mean, that, that just seems so weird. But yeah, again, like very British, isn't it? It's like to have this. So moving on. Um, <laughs> From that, Betty Boo. There's another 1990 record, isn't it? Where Are You Baby by Betty Boo. Yeah, it's gorgeous. She's gorgeous. That's Rhythm King, wasn't it? And at a time where kind of Rhythm King, whatever they released, just became massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. The aesthetic of, of the whole Betty Boo thing was just brilliant. It was that cartoon totally, 60s. That 60s retro, <gasps> sexy kind of, yeah, retro space age, whatever, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but it was like kind of cartoon Barbarella, totally. Motown, kitsch. I, I'm, I'm running out of superlatives, Lucy, for, for Betty Boo. <laughs> but yeah, it, it just, and actually I would probably say at the time, 17 going into starting student life i was probably a bit sniffy about it look back now and you go it's pop perfection yeah and these are all big hits as well that's number three for betty boot number two in the charts was dirty cash the adventures of stevie v yeah and i mean to be honest i know nothing about stevie v or his adventures nope. and 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 what else they they did but i do remember this song being yeah. massive yeah. <laughs> i mean and it's a great song but it's kind of, it, again it's kind of one of those ones that just for me lives without any context i don't i, I don't know anything about it no but, but if it I came on it's like oh wow yeah that's that is 1990 I found a fabulous quote from miranda sawyer at smash hits had said at the time it was hip house at its most brilliantly scuzzy yeah right yeah that's Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and I, th- I think there's nothing else to say on Stevie V after that. Um, so, right, we're going to finish off side four. We've got a couple of cover versions because we like cover versions in this country. The first one is ha- MC Hammer covering the Chai Lights, Have You Seen Her? It's Again, it's hard for me to now know because, because I would say now... I love the Chai Lights and I love a lot of that kind of mm. era of soul. But I can't remember now if I would have known that already, the original already, or maybe I would have just heard this and kind of liked it, you know, because yeah. it's a great song. You can't, you know, it's 
clearly not, not as brilliant as the original, but, you know, it, it's just a good song. And then we finish off with Jimmy Somerville and does this cover version of the Bee Gees to Love Somebody. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Jimmy's voice is just gorgeous, isn't it? I, I'm yeah. happy to hear it basically singing anything. And it's an amazing song. I mean, it's a, you know, know. a Gibb Brothers song. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> They're another one where you just don't even like. How does that talent come? Is it oh. is it all the brothers together? That's the thing. Is it the like? What is it? Yeah, incredible. Yeah. It works, and and again, what it also does because you're right. Jimmy Somerville has this. I think one of the most underrated soul voices that yeah, you know, totally. isn't often spoken about. Yeah, it's beautiful, gorgeous. It does so always find. I mean, the really interesting thing, I, and I'll go. The one thing I wish I could hear, because of course this this was written for Otis Redding, wasn't it? Yes. Otis yeah. had come to see them, had said to ask them to write him a song. They mm-hmm. wrote it, but he died before he could record it. I mean, I can't. It just gives me goosebumps to even think of it. I can't believe that he died at twenty six and left the legacy that he has. It's no. Yeah. Thought of Otis Redding singing to love somebody. Could you imagine yeah. a world where that exists? Oh. Dream. We've got yep. well, we've got the BG singing and we've got we've got Jimmy and I've got Jimmy yeah, Somerville, which it. is which is good, but not Timmy Mallet, thankfully. <laughs> no, not yet. And that brings us to the end of now 18. Did you enjoy that trip? Amazing. I really did, like in so many ways. What a yeah, what a treat. How how did you find it now going back? Was it the same songs? that stood out now, that stood out at the time, or was there a difference? I think partly because I think that whole first side is so unbelievably strong. Like it's, I mean, if you only had to listen to those songs for the rest of your life, it wouldn't be terrible, you know? (laughs) So, um, so I think those, and those always stood out. I mean, partly, I guess, because it is also that thing of of order, isn't it? And with Mm. a tape, you kind of, you know, you do go through in much of an order, maybe you rewind it a bit, and listen to those ones again um so I do think it's probably stacked slightly for me towards Mm. that it definitely made me kind of listen again and in a different way to some of the songs probably more the kind of the dancey tracks actually Mm. like Dirty Cash I really you know if I was ever to DJ I feel like you could put that on a whole load of the room younger room would not have known that song and could possibly think it was a new song. Like, you know, it's yeah. so there's sort of there is that about it. You're right, though. The sequencing of these albums are so important. If I if I was to hear a little time finish, I would be fully expecting the Joker to be coming next. The Joker to come on completely. And that's why the now albums are so important because they give us that snapshot in time. Yeah. Must have been a great job. I mean, I guess it still is a job, but for anyway, thinking back to this one, I'm just like, yes. Yeah. Big high five to whoever put this one together. So if you're going to take just a couple of tracks off this album, what would you take? I think definitely The Joker and definitely Nothing Compares to You. Those two would be my top two. They're just, they mean a lot to me, you know, in many ways. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us on the Back to New podcast and heading back to quite a glorious autumn of 1990. Oh, thank you for taking me that. It's been brilliant. Lucy, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you.